Welcome back to Counting to Five, a podcast about the United States Supreme Court. I'm Mike, your host, and this is our weekly YouTube live stream being broadcast live Thursday, May 3rd, 2018 at 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, this live stream will also be posted as an episode of the Counting to Five audio podcast. If you're watching live, please feel free to ask questions in the YouTube live chat at any time, and I'll try to monitor it per- periodically and answer questions as they come up. In these weekly live streams, uh, we try to keep up to date with the latest Supreme Court news and uh, try and cover everything important that's go- happened in the court in the last week. And here's what I plan to cover today. Now, this has been a quiet week. If you've been following the court, uh, you probably know that the court is on a record slow pace of issuing opinions this year. With less than nine weeks left before the court recesses for the summer, the court still has 39 opinions left to issue. And so due to that backlog, court watchers, including me, were expecting the court to issue some opinions this week, but instead we got nothing. Uh, we did get three new cases granted for next term, and I'll be uh, talking about each of those in a bit, uh, but no opinions this week. Now, what's more, the court's next scheduled sitting, the next time that we're likely to get any opinions, is not until Monday, May 14th. So that means no opinions next week either, also no new granted cases next week. Um, so that'll leave the court at that point with only seven weeks left in the term to uh, to issue those 39 outstanding opinions. Um, so this is quite a backlog and, and we have quite a few opinions, including a lot of um, highly anticipated opinions yet to come. So so here's the plan for uh, today's live stream. I'm going to start with a, a very quick news update and then follow that with a look at the three new cases that the court uh, just granted for next term. And then for the remainder of tonight's live stream, I'm going to give kind of a big picture overview of this term. Look at where we are right now, um, a quick look at the opinions that we've already seen so far this term, and a look at the cases that we're still waiting on, what's upcoming uh, over the next uh, two months. Um, but before I dive into that, I have a request. So I mentioned that there are no opinions or new granted cases expected next week. There are also no scheduled executions in the next week, which always leads to, typically leads to last minute uh, stay applications. Um, there's always a possibility of emergency orders or other unexpected news, but there's a real possibility that there's going to be basically no new Supreme Court news um, next week. So my request to you is, I want to know what you want to hear about. If you're watching or listening to this episode before May 10th, I want to hear from you about what I should cover in next week's live stream. Um, it could be specific cases or legal issues you want me to talk more about, general questions about the court or the justices, whatever you want to hear about, let me know. You can email me at mike at countingtofive.com or leave a comment in the show notes page at countingtofive.com or on the YouTube or Facebook page. You can tweet at countingtofive or you can leave me a voicemail at 774-226-8685. That's 774-2-COUNT-5. But let me know. Let me know what you want to hear about and then I'll do my best to uh, tackle whatever you send at me uh, as much as I can cover in next week's episode. So with that out of the way, let's uh, let's jump right in and talk about the news. I have one uh, update, and this is uh, related to uh, Justice Sotomayor's shoulder injury. Now, a few weeks ago, it was on uh, Monday, April 16th, Justice Sotomayor fell in her home, uh, breaking her shoulder. Now, this was originally reported as a minor injury. It was said that she would uh, just have a few weeks with her arm in a sling and some physical therapy. Um, however, it was later determined that the injury was much more serious than initially thought. It was described 
here's a quote, as a multi-part displaced head-splitting fracture of her proximal humerus. The proximal humerus refers to the ball of the uh, ball and socket shoulder joint. Um, and as a result of this this injury, this Tuesday, that's May 1st, Justice Sotomayor had a full shoulder replacement surgery. Uh, now, the court reported that the surgery went well. Um, she uh, uh, was released on Wednesday from the hospital and is uh, is recuperating at home. She's supposed to, supposed to have a uh, sling for several weeks and several months of physical therapy, but is expected to recover full shoulder mobility. That's the word from the court about uh, um, the latest on Justice Sotomayor. Um, the this uh, the the court has said that this is not uh, this uh, her injury and surgery and uh, treatment. Um, it won't interfere with any court conferences and the court, uh, you know, um, assures that it won't interfere with, uh, with the court's work. Uh, however, at this busy time of year, the spending a, a few days in the hospital and, uh, and, uh, um, you know, the sling and things like that, uh, certainly can't help, but, uh, but hopefully the court will be able to, uh, go about its business and, and, uh, get these opinions out, um, before the end of June. So that, that's it for, that's the only, uh, brief uh, news update. So let's move on to the new cert grants, the new cases um, that, that the court has added to its docket for next term, the term starting in October. Now, these three new cases bring us up to a total of 12 that the court has so far um, put on its uh, calendar or its uh, caseload for next year, next term. Um, these new cases will likely be argued in either uh, the October or November oral argument sitting. We won't know for a while yet until the court starts having calendars come out. Um, but, uh, there's 12 cases so far and let's just talk about each of these new cases. Now, the first case is a case called Bucklew v. Presythe. Um, now this is a case that we talked about, um, in a uh, previous, uh, live stream episode. Uh, and it, it involves a death row inmate named Russell Bicklew in Missouri who had been scheduled for execution on Tuesday, March 20th. Now, he had been convicted of murder and uh, a number of other violent acts, including kidnap and rape and attempted murder uh, and other uh, violent assaults related uh, in this uh, uh, to, to the murder. And um, and he had been sentenced to death and was scheduled to be executed by lethal injection. Now, he brought a claim arguing that lethal injection – uh, as applied to him personally because of his uh, special circumstances would be cruel and unusual punishment. Now, those special circumstances are that he suffers from a rare disease uh, known as a uh, cavernous hemangioma, um, which uh, apparently involves unstable blood-filled tumors in his head, neck, and throat, uh, including a throat tumor that obstructs his breathing. Now, these tumors apparently easily rupture and bleed, and the claim is that the, the the breathing stress of the lethal injection will likely cause his throat tumor to burst, causing him to painfully suffocate after choking on his own blood rather than uh, dying from the the uh, lethal injection protocol. And and due to these these uh, unique um, medical circumstances, this would be cruel and unusual punishment as applied to him. Now the court uh, issued an order staying his execution. Um, pending their consideration of his petition, his, his uh, cert petition for the court to take his case. Um, that stay was by a vote of five to four, and it broke along 
um, the uh, stereotypical ideological lines with Justice Kennedy joining the four uh, more liberal justices in uh, deciding to grant the stay application. Um, and so that was a stay pending to, to give the court time to consider his petition. Now they have considered and have granted that petition. So they've actually granted that and they will be hearing this case next term. Now, the the legal issue here is that there's a a Supreme Court case called Glossop v. Gross. And under that case, the, the court held that when someone wants to challenge a method of execution as cruel and unusual, um, the challenger has to... Uh, has to propose an alternate, an adequate alternate, alternative method of execution that would be less cruel. Um, this is, this is a very controversial, um, uh, aspect of the, the cruel and unusual, uh, punishment test. Um, some have kind of, uh, characterized this grotesque to re- require the contemned, uh, condemned inmate to propose their own method of execution. Um, but, uh, the, the court will be, uh, considering uh, some some issues related to this, one is is just some details about how how this uh, needs to be proved, what sort of evidence needs to be presented um, about alternatives, and, and whether something is or is not uh, more or less uh, uh, cruel. Um, and 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 also, there's a second kind of legal question that the court is being asked: Does this test apply when this is an as applied challenge? Meaning, when he's he's not saying that lethal injection across the board is cruel and unusual, but only lethal injection as applied to him personally due to his particular circumstances. Um, and interestingly, uh, the Bucklew, that's the uh, the condemned inmate, he had proposed. Um, a uh, lethal gas as an alternative to the lethal injection, which apparently is allowed under Missouri law, but hasn't been used in decades. Now, um, an interesting thing about this 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 case in the grant. So, when a when someone petitions the court to take their case, um, they they propose uh, what's known as it's what's known as the question presented, and the question presented is a very brief statement. Um, sometimes as short as a single sentence, sometimes a few sentences to kind of set up the context, but a very short pr- presentation of the specific legal issue that the court is being asked to resolve. And um, the typically, what and this may be one single question, or some cases may have multiple questions, multiple separate questions presented uh, that the court is being asked to resolve. And usually the court just grants um, these questions presented uh, exactly as written, just how, how they're presented by the petitioner. If the court decides to grant the petition, then it leaves those questions alone. Um, but sometimes the court, if there's multiple questions presented, will only grant some of those. Some, and occasionally the court will either rewrite a question or add additional questions that they want um, added to the case. Now, w- once once uh, the court has granted a case, the the arguments from the parties are supposed to be limited to issues that are basically fairly contained within the questions presented. So those questions presented kind of establish the scope of what the court is really um, interested in, in in deciding in the particular case. So with, with that background, in this in this case, the Bucklew case, um, the court added an, an additional question um, that it wants the parties to uh, to uh, to brief and argue. In addition to the questions that that Bucklew had proposed about the uh, how how the um, this uh, proposal of alternative methods of execution, how that applies to him. The court added a new question, and here I'll read the new question. And it reads, whether petitioner met his burden under Glossop v. Gross to prove what procedures would be used to administer his proposed alternative method of execution, the severity and duration of pain likely to be produced, and how they compare to the state's method of execution. 
So it's it's questioning whether the petitioner has met um, the, the this requirement under a previous case. Now, keep in mind he he was arguing and and has argued that that requirement shouldn't even apply in his in his circumstances. But the court has added an additional question. So what this looks like to me is that this is a question that's added by the justices who were opposed to granting this case in the first place. So presumably the um, the four uh, more conservative justices who opposed staying the execution in the first place, and they've added an additional question, kind of challenging whether um, he, he's even met the standards to to bring this challenge in the first place under their existing precedent. So it's just an interesting um, kind of little little twist on on uh, on that case. So let's move on to the next case. The, the next case the court granted on Monday is called Lamps Plus v. Varela. Now, this is a case about the Federal Arbitration Act, and specifically it's about class action arbitration. So let, let me back up a little bit. Here's the basic facts of the case. Uh, the, the plaintiff is, is a, a man named Frank Varela, who's an employee of a company called Lamps Plus. Now, when he um, was hired and, and uh, started working at Lamps Plus, he signed an arbitration agreement with the company. And that arbitration agreement uh, requires the arbitration of all claims arising out of the employment relationship. Now, um, if you if you followed the Supreme Court for a while, you may know that these these cases uh, concerning these arbitration clauses, this is a recurring subject on the court's docket. And there's a federal statute called the Federal Arbitration Act, a very old statute, which um, says that the courts are are required to um, uh, to enforce these types of arbitration. Agreements. The, uh, these are valid and enforceable. And if uh, someone has a valid agreement to arbitrate, then the courts are supposed to um, kick cases out and require the parties to go to arbitration uh, and uh, and have claims resolved in arbitration. Now, the specific issue here is an issue the court has also dealt with multiple times: is the issue of class arbitration. Now, um, the one one big issue with these uh, these arbitration agreements is that. Um, uh, some many plaintiffs and, and and especially plaintiffs attorneys who want to bring various types of actions against against uh, companies um, often want to bring them in the form of a class action. A class actions where you aggregate claims by a whole bunch of people who are bringing um, closely related uh, legal claims and bring them in a single lawsuit, and it it can make uh, claims which standing on their own may not be um, worth enough money to be worth litigating. Uh, it can. Uh, Turn them into a, a larger dollar value uh, case that's that's worth uh, 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 bringing, and so the issue is if someone is forced uh, into arbitration rather than litigation, then um, then they they have uh, lost the ability to bring these class actions. Um, now there are procedures where some uh, arbitrations uh, can be brought as class action arbitrations, um, and so the question here is. Under this agreement that Varela signed with Lambs Plus, can he bring a? He, he has to arbitrate, so that's uh, that's not disputed in this case that he has this arbitration agreement. The question is, can he bring a class action arbitration? Um, the specific issue in that case was related to a data breach. Uh, someone someone um, from outside the company obtained employees W twos, and so Varela brought a class action against Lambs Plus for claims that are related to this data breach. So. Uh, Privacy-related claims and things related to this data, data breach. Now, um, so the the issue is he wants to bring a class-wide arbitration, and the argument is that the see the arbitration agreement 
um, is kind of doesn't say anything about class actions. It doesn't mention them one way or another. It doesn't say that class action arbitration can't be brought. It doesn't say that it can. It uses broad language about uh, saying that all claims that could be brought in court uh, must be brought in arbitration. Um, and uh, a lower court um, held that under state contract law, uh, ambiguities in a contract are supposed to be interpreted against the draft. I'm sorry, my, my feed briefly cut out, but I'm back now. Um, I was just saying that uh, uh, there's a, a, a fairly common um, contract law doctrine which says that there's if there's ambiguities in a contract, they should be interpreted against the party that drafted the contract. And a lower court said that because uh, the contract, the, this arbitration agreement, didn't specify whether class actions could be brought in the arbitration or not, uh, that was ambiguous, ambiguous and that uh, it should be uh, interpreted to allow those class actions by interpreting it against Lamps Plus, who the company who uh, drew up the arbitration agreement. Um, now, Lamps Plus has has uh, disagreed with this interpretation and argues that that the the contract only uh, allows that that substantive claims, so that the particular legal claims um, that could be brought in litigation but can be brought in arbitration, but not procedural devices like class actions. And they, they argue the whole point of arbitration is to provide a cheaper and more streamlined procedure, and that purpose is is undone if litigation tools are imported into, you know, ex- expensive and burdensome litigation tools like class actions are imported into the arbitration context. Um, and so, and, 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 uh, Lamps Plus also argues that basically the lower court was evading direct Supreme Court precedent that explicitly rejected um, an inference of class-wide treatment from uh, just a bare arbitration agreement. So that's that's the issue the court's going to um, confront in that case. And now uh, the third and final case this week of uh, uh, newly granted case is another class action related case. And this one is called Frank v. Gauss. And this is a case about Cypre settlements. Um, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a second and explain what that means. But first, just some real brief class action background. So as I mentioned just a, a minute ago, class actions allow uh, the aggregation of a larger number of small claims. And those individual claims may be too small to be worth suing over. Um, but when those claims are all brought together in a class action, uh, an entire class of people's claims can all be resolved in one single action. And the important thing here, here is the non-parties that are members of the class, so the people who are defined to be members of the class but haven't actually brought the lawsuit themselves, they're still bound by this. Uh, their legal claims get resolved just as if they had brought a, uh, action themselves, um, and, uh, and, and they are barred from afterward bringing their own uh, separate action on those same uh, issues because they've already been resolved. Um, and as a result, the class action requires certain things like notice to the class members and an opportunity for them to opt out of the class action if they don't want to be a part of it. Um, but uh, class actions are frequently settled because uh, with, with so much money on the line, uh, many defendants don't want to risk an enormous verdict. So many, many class actions uh, reach a settlement. In class actions, Unlike just a, a typical um, non-class litigation where the parties can just agree on the terms of a settlement, in a class action, settlements must be approved by the judge. Uh, the point, the purpose of this is to protect the rights of absent class members um, and and to to make sure that whatever settlement is reached by the the parties who are present there is also fair to the non-parties uh, or the 
absent parties, the parties, the members of the class who are not um, actually participating, but are still, their rights will be determined by this class action. And settlement agreements also will cover things like the attorney's fees and things like that. Um, so a judge has to approve these things before they go through. Now, the, this uh, the doctrine called Cypre, and that's spelled C-Y-P-R-E-S, and it comes from a, a, a that's that's kind of a, a Anglicization of a of a uh, a French uh, part of a French phrase that means as close as possible, and it comes from um, the the law of wills and trusts. And the the idea there is is sometimes in a will or a trust or some sort of um, legal doc, uh, instrument like that, um, some purpose will, will 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 be in that in that uh, a will may have some a trust may have some purpose it's supposed to achieve, um, but that may through the passage of time become impossible. And the Cypre doctrine says that courts are supposed to um, just reinterpret the contract to uh, to come as close as is possible to the original intent. So a simple example was suppose someone had set up a trust that was su- supposed to provide funds to um, to preserve some uh, local historic landmark, um, but then suppose subsequently. A, a hurricane swept through and just completely obliterated that historic landmark so that it no longer existed. Well, that trust is still there with these funds set aside that are supposed to preserve it. It now can't be preserved because it's gone. So what happens? The court may invoke this doctrine to say that um, that money that was supposed to go to preserve this historic landmark should be instead um, put toward other similar historic preservation purposes in the area, uh, because that's as close as you can come to the original intent of the uh, the drafter. So, what does this have to do with class actions? Well, in in uh, recent decades, this idea has been kind of brought over to the class action um, area, and the original uh, purpose of it was to deal with funds that were um, paid by a defendant in a class action uh, that were unable to be paid to the, to uh, actual class members. So just as a simple example, suppose someone uh, suppose there was a, a product liability uh, class action and suppose there were say a hundred thousand units sold of whatever this de- supposedly defective product was and it was determined that each purchaser of these hundred thousand units was entitled to a twenty dollar refund. Well, that would amount to $2 million, and the, the company might be required, the defendant, to um, pay that $2 million into a settlement fund. And from that fund, the the, uh, the attorneys would be responsible for identifying and paying as many of these purchasers of the 100,000 units as it was possible to find and paying them each their $20 refund. Um, but there's going to be some unclaimed funds. Some number of those people, and often a large number, will be uh, unable – will be unidentifiable. Um, now, traditionally, the unclaimed funds would just revert back to the defendant. So the, the company paid in this $2 million. If a million dollars is left over at the end because they can't identify half of the people who purchased these units, then the company gets that million dollars back. Um, as a response to that, because that was seen as kind of a windfall to the company and, and not serving the proper de- deterrent functions that litigation is supposed to serve, um, this Cypre option said that the remaining funds should instead be used to go to some cause, usually it's some nonprofit or charity that uh, that is in some way related to the uh, the subject of the of the law lawsuit. So the idea would be in in my example with the defective product, maybe it would go to some non nonprofit that organization that warns consumers about defective prop uh, products. 
um, so that so that uh, the money would be used for serving a similar related purpose instead of just reverting to the company. Now, over the years, this uh, Cypre has become a major feature of some class actions where. Um, instead of just being used to deal with um, leftover funds that can't be distributed, um, funds are specifically designated in class action settlements to go to some third party in the first place. And this is uh, very controversial for reasons I can, uh, I'll explain in a moment. But first, let me just briefly give the um, uh, brief facts of this particular case. Now this, uh, this particular class action involved here, was a class action against Google, and it was a uh, the cl- the claim was it was related to um, in web browsers um, when someone clicks on a link in a web browser, um, the the browser sends a request to the web page that that's been clicked, and some part of the information that's uh, typically sent to that web uh, page is the referring website, so it's the the URL of the website that that uh, where the link was that the person clicked, so it's the website that's the person is coming from. And this lets websites know like, where they're getting their traffic from. They can see what sites are directing people and sending people to their website. However, when these links are coming from a search engine like Google, this, uh, these refer, these headers that, that, that go to the, uh, the, uh, the requested uh, website, they will often include the search terms, um, that were, that were in the search, uh, that the, that the person clicked the links from. Um, so people's search terms will get transmitted to the uh, websites that they're, uh, that they're um, visiting from Google. Now, this was a class action against Google um, alleging privacy violations uh, due to this, uh, these um, uh, search terms being transmitted to other websites. And it was brought on behalf of an estimated 129 million U.S. users of Google. Now there was a settlement uh, was uh, agreement was reached between Google and the uh, attorneys for the uh, the plaintiffs, and the agreement called for an 8.5 million dollar settlement fund that would be paid by Google, and that would cover the claims of all 129 million U.S. Google users. They would all um, uh, those claims would be extinguished. However, Google was not required to make any changes to its policies or practices, and no money was given to any of the the uh, the plaintiff class. Those 129 million users did not receive any money, with the exception of the class representatives who got uh, some small fee um, for for personally participating. And so, is 8.5 million dollars going to the settlement fund? And class counsel were going to get 25% of that settlement fund, so over two million dollars going to the attorneys. And the rest of the fund was designated to go to six organizations for the purpose of promoting, basically promoting public awareness about internet privacy. And those organizations were the World World Privacy Forum, Carnegie Mellon University, the Center for Information Society and Policy at Chicago Kent College of Law, the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University, the Stanford Center for Internet and Society, and the uh, the AARP. So those six organizations were going to receive 75% of this um $8.5 million settlements to fund. So what happened is a legal challenge was brought by objectors to the settlement. So people who are members of the class, um, when given notice of a proposed settlement, uh, have an opportunity to object to it. And uh, then there were objectors to the settlement. And they argued basically that this this uh, this settlement is inappropriate. And they're basically challenging the 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 lack of legal guidelines or rules about how these type of um, Cypre 
settlements are used. And they, they complain specifically in this case that um, this, this settlement provides nothing to the actual members of the class, although the attorneys are receiving large fees from it. Um, and they argue that there's some conflicts of interest here. Uh, four of those organizations that are getting money here already receive money from Google, in some cases very large amounts of money, which suggests that to some degree this may be kind of a shell game where Google can just designate money that they would have given as a charitable contribution anyway, instead comes as a litigation a settlement um part of their litigation settlement and in effect they they uh they end up paying nothing uh to the extent that the money is just being um, move from uh, one uh, accounting line to another. And also three of the organizations are the alma maters of class council, which suggests that, that uh, you know, attorneys may be trying to benefit their, uh, their, their own schools, uh, perhaps for their own personal reputational reasons. Um, and, and so they, they brought this, uh, this action basically just to challenge the lack of, um, lack of standards and controls on, uh, on this, this practice. Um, Interestingly, the 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 named um, objector in this case, uh, the, the Frank in the in the name of the of the uh, the case, Frank V. Gauss, is a man named Ted Frank, who's uh, the director of the Center for Class Action Fairness, which is uh, a, a part of the Competitive Enterprise Institute think tank. Now, uh, Ted Frank is well known in uh, in legal circles as a, a very frequent objector to class action settlements, um, and that's basically the 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 part of the the uh, the goal of the Center for Class Action Fairness that he runs is to monitor class action proposed class action settlements and ob- find objectors to uh, to settlements that are regarded as either not serving the interests of the class members or to providing uh, excessive attorney fee awards or things like that. And so so he's a frequent um, uh, a frequent objector in all sorts of class actions, either uh, either personally as the uh, the named objector or um, as the uh, attorney who's uh, organizing these uh, class action settlement um, objectors. And so, so he has with this uh, brought brought a case uh, to the Supreme Court on one of these uh, policy issues that he's been vocal um, about for for uh, quite a few years. So that that brings us to. Uh, the end of the uh, the cases for this week, the, the 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 new cases, and so for the rest of the time tonight, I want to just kind of take a look at this term, um, a little bit, look back at what's happened so far in the term, and uh, to look at some of the cases that we're still expecting to come down before the end of June. So just as a as a brief overview, the term, the court's term, runs every year from October, beginning of October to the end of June, basically. Court hears arguments um, each uh, in a sitting each month from October through April, and then spends the months of May and June just finishing up all its opinions before it goes on recess at the end of June. And then in July and August and most of September, the justices go their own ways. Uh, a lot of them travel, some teach classes, things like that, um, and then return at the end of September uh, before the the next terms beginning in October. Now. This year, the court had a total of 63 argued cases, 63 cases that it heard oral argument on. Um, and that's, that's basically a historic, uh, low. The court, the court has had a dwindling docket for some time where, it, where it's, it's been falling, uh, back in the 1980s, the court used to routinely hear upwards of 150 cases a term. 
Um, and now they've typically been more in the ballpark of 70 cases and even in the 60s for several recent years. But this is a, a basically a new low this year with only 63 argued cases. And one of those cases ended up being dismissed as moot. That's the uh, United States v. Microsoft case. Um, so that case didn't, uh, they didn't, court was not actually able to resolve the issue that they granted in that case, leaving only really 62 cases, uh, 62 opinions total in argued cases expected by the end of the year. Now, of those 62 cases, the court has issued opinions already in 23, um, leaving 39 cases still expected by the end of June. Uh, so quite a few cases still coming down. And um, among those 39 cases that are still expected, there is a pretty substantial number, probably eight or nine or so cases that are very highly anticipated cases, cases that have gotten a good amount of press. Some of them deal with kind of hot-button political issues. Some are just uh, very important for um, – for certain uh, um, industries or interest groups. Um, so so there's a lot, of, not just a large number of cases uh, of opinions set to come down, but, but uh, quite a few um, significant and highly anticipated cases. So what I'm going to do now is kind of run through this year's cases very briefly, just touch very briefly on the cases, what we've seen so far this year, um, just basically subject matter by subject matter. I've kind of broken these cases up into different types. Now, some of these cases could have uh, fit into more than one category, so I've kind of just chosen where I thought they fitted for for these purposes. But this, I think I want to run through this just kind of to give, I think it gives a good sense of the breadth of the types of cases that the court hears in a given year. Um, there's quite a range of different types of cases, ranging from from uh, very um, kind of front page type uh, cases to some very technical things that probably of interest to no one except for um, litigators practicing in a particular area. But I'm going to run through um, really quickly uh, the different cases the court's heard, and and toward the end of it, I'll be touching more on um, on upcoming cases, especially these high uh, kind of uh, high profile cases. So I'll get started. So the court had a number of cases this year that I've just kind of generally categorized as uh, cases just related to civil litigation. Uh, there's a couple cases just about civil litigation generally. These are pretty te- technical cases that aren't going to get a lot of attention. The court uh, issued an opinion in a case called Hamer v. Neighborhood Housing Services of Chicago. There's about uh, time limits for the ex- uh, for getting extensions on filing a notice of, of appeal. So it's a very technical legal issue. Another case called Artist v. District of Columbia. The court issued an opinion about that. And it was about the statutes of limitations and um, – and the court had decided that that uh, statutes of limitations in some circumstances, the clock basically was stopped um, on certain claims, state law claims that were brought in federal court. Um, and uh, so this is another very technical litigation um, case. Now, now, the next, there was a couple cases that related to um, uh, lawsuits uh, about uh, civil rights violations. Um, and the first of those was one that got attention not because it was particularly legally significant, but because it had very colorful facts. It was a case called District of Columbia v. Wesby. And that was a, a case about uh, police had uh, arrested a number of attendees at a uh, kind of wild house party in a vacant uh, um, abandoned uh, building. And um, the court in that case ruled that the police had qualified immunity for arresting the house party attendees, uh, meaning they, that they couldn't be sued for any potential uh, constitutional violations related to that arrest. Um, another case uh, related is in, in the same general area was about prisoners bringing these ca- claims and about um, prisoners who bring a successful um, 
civil rights action uh, from prison, and the court found that that uh, under the statute involved there, um, up to twenty five percent of the prisoners. Uh, uh, com- uh, award um, in if they if they won one of those cases had to go toward attorneys fees. Previously, some courts had held that it was discretionary, and courts could choose to uh, only require a smaller amount of the prisoners. Um, recovery to go toward attorney's fees, but the court held that um, up to a full 25% uh, if, if needed to cover attorney's fees must must come out of the prisoner's award. Then uh, there were a number of cases under some under different specific federal statutes. The court decided one case called National Association of Manufacturers v. Department of Defense, which is under the Clean Water Act, and it was about what court uh, appeals need to be brought in. And the court decided they need to go to the district courts, that's the federal trial courts, rather than straight to the court of appeals. Now, another case was called Jesner v. Arabank that was recently decided under a statute called the Alien Tort Statute. And the court there held that under the uh, these Alien Tort Statute claims, those are claims for uh, violations of international law, uh, they can't be brought against uh, foreign corporations. Um Another case called Digital Realty Trust v. Summers involved the Dodd-Frank Act and uh, specifically um, whistleblower protection provisions. The court found that those whistleblower protection provisions, the anti-retaliation provisions, only applied to whistleblowers who had reported the violations to the SEC, not people who had reported through other internal company procedures. In a case called Rubin v. Islamic Republic of, of Iran, the court um, dealt with the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act and and uh, held that um, th- this was an attempt to uh, seize uh, cultural artifacts that were held by a museum that belonged to Iran um, to uh, to satisfy the uh, victims of terrorist acts. And the court said that th- that there, that um, there needed to be some independent statutory basis for for seizing the particular property that was going to be seized. Um, they couldn't just rely on general provisions of the uh, the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. Another case called Hall v. Hall um, dealt with, uh, this is kind of just another general litigation case, but dealt with um, consolidated cases when courts uh, group multiple cases together um, for for trial for trial purposes. Whether uh, if one of those consolidated cases decided and others haven't been resolved yet, can someone immediately appeal? And the court said, yes, they can. And then one more case was under the Fair Labor Standards Act, which governs um, uh, wage and hour claims, federal wage and hour claims. And the court held that service advisors at car dealerships are exempt from the Fair Labor Standards Act uh, overtime requirements. So that's just a, a number of cases, and the court has already decided all of those cases. Those are opinions that have come down in a bunch of different civil litigation contexts. That kind of gives you a sense of the different types of um, uh, cases that the court is hearing. Moving on, I'm not going to go through every case in detail, but I'll just kind of group these uh, by 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 topic here. The court has uh, three bankruptcy cases this term, two of which it's already decided, U.S. Bank National Association v. Village of Lake Ridge and Merit Management Group v. FTI Consulting. Um, and a third one that they, they have not yet decided called Lamar Archer and Coffrin LLP v. Appling. Um, that one uh, is, we're still waiting on, and it's about whether um, – uh, false statements um, made by a uh, a a debtor. Um, in in which circumstances are those false statements? Those false statements um, render a a, a debt uh, non dischargeable in bankruptcy. Uh, the court has heard three patent cases this year. Um, two of them, one one have already been decided, and and those two that were decided were both related to a process called inter partes review, which is a procedure where um, the patent office uh, re-examines an, an adversarial re-examination 
of a patent uh, to to um, to kind of reconsider whether the patent is that was actually validly issued. Um, and the one that was very closely watched was called Oil States Energy Services v. Greens Energy Group. Um, had the court uh, we, that case actually challenged this inter partes review process as unconstitutional. Um, had the court found that it was unconstitutional, it would have uh, been a major change uh, to patent law, but the court uh, upheld inter partes review as contra- constitutional, so that ended up being a less um, significant case. And there's a third patent case uh, called Western Geco v. Ion Geophysical Corp. And uh, in that case, is, is about uh, profits, uh, it's about the damages in a patent action and whether a plaintiff can get lost profits from extraterritorial actions um, and uh, so so uh, international actions that, that uh, result that are kind of downstream from a patent violation, um, can, can, uh, can those, are those damages recoverable? Um, moving on to other topics, the court heard two cases uh, in the court's original jurisdiction. These are cases where one U.S. state directly sues another U.S. state. And these are usually uh, concerning water rights. And, and there were two cases this year about water rights. One was called Texas v. New Mexico and Colorado. And uh, and that, that was a water uh, dispute about the Rio Grande. And that was specifically the court held in that case that the United States was allowed to intervene in that case to protect its own interests related to its treaty with Mexico about the, the river. Uh, and it's, but a second case called Florida v. Georgia hasn't been decided yet. And that's about um, uh, Florida uh, is, is uh, um, demanding uh, apportionment of water uh, on a river system from, from Georgia, saying that it's, it, Georgia's uh, not providing enough water downstream and it's uh, harming Florida's ecosystem. Um, the court had two cases that I've kind of classified as just uh, criminal law issues, just about um, uh, 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 substantive criminal law. One was called Marinello of the United States, and this was about obstruction, criminal obstruction under the tax code. And the court in that case decided that criminal obstruction required knowledge of an ongoing tax investigation. Uh, in order to find someone guilty of criminal obstruction. The second case is a bit different, called Lagos v. United States. It was about a, a statute called the Mandatory Victims Restitution Act, which requires um, people convicted of certain crimes to uh, to pay restitution to the victims of those crimes. And the issue there was whether the, the restitution required under that act included um, costs associ- associated with a non-government investigation related to the, the crime. Um, and uh, so that that case that that that's still outstanding. We haven't had an opinion yet in that case. The court had a number of cases related in one way or another to criminal procedure. Uh, it's decided a few cases. There was a case called Class v. United States, um, where the court held that guilty pleas don't waive someone's right to appeal on the basis that the law they were convicted under was unconstitutional. A case called Ayestas v. Davis um, was about the the uh, standard. Um, for the legal standard for requesting funds to pay for experts for someone who's who's uh, um, uh, seeking a, a habeas corpus, so seeking to uh, have a conviction overturned or a, a conviction or sentence overturned, what's the standard for requesting certain types of experts? Another case called Wilson v. Sellers was about what federal courts are supposed to do when they're reviewing a state court conviction and uh, some of the state uh, um, uh, courts did not explain the reasoning for their, their decisions. And so what is the court supposed to do with those cases? So the, the court already issued opinions in those cases, but there's a few more criminal procedure type cases that are still 
um, out there. One interesting one was called McCoy v. Louisiana. And this was about whether a defense attorney is allowed to concede the client's guilt over that client's objection. And the, the issue here was a, a attorney who argued that he had made a, a strategic decision to concede the client's guilt in order to try and obtain, um, avoid a death sentence in the case. Um, another case called Courier v. Virginia uh, is about double jeopardy and how double jeopardy applies if um, someone is charged with multiple cr- crimes and those are severed and, and tried in several different trials. How does that affect double jeopardy? That's still outstanding. Another case called City of Hayes, Kansas v. Vote um, is a Fifth Amendment um, right against self-incrimination case. And that case... Um, asks whether this right against self-incrimination, whether it applies at a preliminary, certain preliminary hearings or only at the trial itself. So if there's preliminary criminal hearings, does that right against self-incrimination apply and, and, and how does it apply? And then, uh, one, one more case was called, uh, United States v. Sanchez Gomez. And that was about, um, challenges to pretrial physical restraints. So it was, um, it was courtroom processes where people brought in for pretrial hearings were uh, were um, cuffed and and uh, and bound in in shackles, and and the question there is really whether this is a reviewable by the courts of appeals or not. So those are those are some things that are still outstanding. We're waiting for in those criminal procedure areas. And there were four cases this term directly about criminal sentencing. Three of those cases are about uh, just different variations on a particular um, circumstance. The there's a um, uh, in, in the federal criminal system, sentences are, um, determined by consulting, uh, something known as the, the federal sentencing guidelines, which provide a range of set of a sentencing range, um, based on particular crimes, particular facts related to the crime and the criminal history of the person being sentenced. Um, but some of those ranges, um, have, uh, periodically the sentencing commission, which creates those sentencing guidelines, uh, amends those guidelines, and in some cases, the guidelines, recommended guidelines, are lowered for certain crimes. And so, a recurring problem is um, is is related to uh, when those guidelines are lowered, whether a particular defendant is entitled to a reduction uh, in their sentence. And the court heard three cases that were different variations on that: one called Coons v. United States, one called Hughes v. United States, and Chavez Meza v. United States. And then a fourth sentencing um, case called Rosales Miralles the United States, um, was, was more about the, the standard, um, for, uh, for when, uh, when there's a, a, an error was made in sentencing, um, but the error wasn't properly objected to or appealed, uh, at what point, um, can someone still go back and ask a court to correct that, to, uh, to fix that error? So those are sentencing cases and there haven't been opinions in any of those yet. So those are all still outstanding. Um, there were uh, two cases that were related to appointments to federal offices, and um, one called Delmazi v. United States is a, a kind of an odd case, and it's about um, military judges and whether it's uh, legal for a military judge to simultaneously serve on the Army or Air Force Court of Criminal Appeals and also on the Court of Military Commission Review, That's a, a, which reviews the um, mil- appeals from military commissions like the Guantanamo detainee commissions. Um, and, and it's a, a challenge, uh, t- saying that, that basically it's, it's, it's unlawful for someone to simultaneously serve in those two different, um, military judge roles. Um, another case called, uh, uh, Lucia, the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, involves the, the SEC and, and their administrative law judges or ALJs who hear, um, securities, uh, 
adjudications in the SEC. They act like judges, but they they're within the agency. And the argument there is that they're up, they're not constitutionally appointed. Um, and so uh, the court heard arguments about that, about whether these ALJs are actually serving unconstitutionally because they haven't been appointed in the the manner. Um, required by the Constitution. And those cases are also still outstanding. Dalmazi, um, about the judge, the military judges and, uh, Lucia, Lucia about the, uh, SEC. Uh, one case which doesn't, um, there's a couple cases don't kind of, uh, that are kind of by themselves don't really fit into a, a category with other cases this term. One case called Animal Science Pro- Products, the uh, Hebei Welcome Pharmaceutical Company, deals with uh, it's an antitrust action involving um, Chinese companies. And but the question there is about whether courts have to defer to foreign government representations about what foreign law requires. So it's 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 an interesting question about the way that courts determine what the law of other countries is. Uh, the court had one antitrust case this term, Ohio v. American Express Company, and that case is asking uh, in in what's known as two-sided markets, and and in, in particular, this case is about credit card markets, where credit card companies are both on one hand trying to get um, uh, cardholders to to use their cards, and on the other hand, trying to get vendors to accept their cards. Uh, whether uh, in alleging an antitrust violation, the government has to consider both sides of that market to make their uh, their case of a of a uh, of anti-competitive conduct. So that's that's a case we're waiting to hear on. Uh, one very unusual claw, uh, uh, case was brought under the Constitution's contract clause. This is a case called Sveen v. Mellon, and it actually argues that a um, a law, a state law related to divorce, uh, which changes the um, beneficiary of certain uh, insurance contracts upon divorce, whether that um, statute uh, violates the contract clause of the Constitution by changing the terms of a contract um, retroactively. Uh, and we're waiting on a decision from the court on that. Um, the court heard two cases related to um, uh, Indian law, American Indian law. Um, one was the Upper Skagit Indian Tribe v. Lundgren, um, which is about a land dispute. It's just a, a simple land boundary dispute. Um, but in this case, it's complicated by the fact that uh, one of the landowners is a, um, a an Indian tribe, and there's a claim that their sovereign immunity, the, the immunity from lawsuits that they have by virtue of being a, a government, um, uh, uh, means that they can't be uh, can't be brought into court over this land dispute. The other case is called Washington v. United States, and this is about um, treaties entered into by certain um, Indian tribes in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, an argument that the state of Washington, um, in order to comply with these. Uh, treaties needs to replace the culverts under many highways in Washington to allow the flow of salmon uh, through those uh, through those culverts um, so th- those those are still outstanding so that so um, now let's move on uh, I've got a few more uh, areas to cover and, and here's I'm going to get to some of the most highly anticipated cases um, in a few of these areas so the court heard uh, two cases that you could call, uh, I, I grouped them together as kind of separation of powers or federalism cases. These are uh, cases about the balance between different, um, different, uh, uh, government, uh, either branches or different, um, government bodies. The first of those is called Patrick v. Zinke. In this case, the court already decided, and this was, this was, uh, about the, the balance of power between Congress and the federal courts and whether Congress could amend a law to essentially, 
uh, require courts to dismiss a pending lawsuit. And the, and the Supreme Court said basically Congress could in that case. The second case is a, is the a federalism case. This is Murphy v. National Collegiate Athletic Association. This was formerly called Christie v. National Collegiate Athletic Association um, after uh, Chris Christie, the former governor um, of New Jersey, but uh, after the uh, the change in governors, it's now Murphy, and and that is a case about sports betting. This is one of the highly anticipated cases. Does a federal law bar New Jersey from repealing its prohibitions on sports betting? Um, and that case has gotten a lot of attention, um, partly just because of the subject matter about sports betting and the involvement of the uh, NCAA as a as as a, as the party in the case. Um, uh, but uh, but it's an interesting uh, case about about um, how far um, Congress can go to to require uh, state governments to to uh, be in line with uh, federal policy in this case in the area of uh, of gambling. Um, the court has uh, several cases related to the Fourth Amendment or or to searches, not necessarily directly in the Fourth Amendment. Um, one of those cases is very highly anticipated. This is a case called Carpenter v. United States. And this is a case that asks whether the government needs a warrant in order to obtain cell site location data. So this is um, data from cell towers that indicates what cell tower a particular cell phone was connecting to. And by using this data, the, the government can get a rough um, idea of where people are located uh, uh, over time. And um, the government has argued there that they don't need any warrant and can obtain this uh, information uh, uh, with, uh, with, there's basically no Fourth Amendment protection uh, for this data. Um, so that's a that closely watched question that may have implications on other types of electronic data stored by um, third parties like cell phone providers or um, internet service providers or things like that. Um, but the court had a couple other interesting um, Fourth Amendment search cases. Um, both related to automobiles. There was a case called Bird v. United States, which asked whether an unauthorized driver of a rental car uh, has a reasonable expectation of privacy against being searched by the police. Uh, another case called Collins v. Virginia asks whether um, the automobile exception, that's that's an exception to the, the Fourth Amendment protections that allows um, police to uh, to search vehicles without obtaining warrants first. Does that apply when a vehicle is parked in a driveway next to a house? So it's not a vehicle that's been pulled over on the side of a highway, but it's a vehicle that's parked in someone's driveway. Does that automobile exception apply? Um, in those cases, those Fourth Amendment cases are all still uh, uh, pending. We haven't we haven't got opinions on that. Another search related case is called Dada v. United States. Um, this is not a Fourth Amendment case, but it's about a um, a statute. Um, uh, allowing for wiretaps, and the question there is whether if a wiretap is authorized beyond a court's uh, geographic jurisdiction, um, so in violation of that statute, the statute that it provides for this, um, must the information that's obtained from that wiretap be suppressed um, in court? Uh, and and that, that's an opinion that's, that's uh, being weighted on also. I mentioned earlier that the court had heard argument in a case called U.S. v. Microsoft, um, but that case was... Uh, was dismissed as moot. That was a case that acts, asked whether uh, under the Stored Communications Act, the government was allowed to access email that was stored overseas, stored in a foreign country on a server in some other uh, some other uh, country. Um, Congress passed a, uh, a new uh, uh, statute called the Cloud Act, which uh, which explicitly allowed the government access to these. Uh, data stored in foreign countries so that ended up mooting this case when the government got a new new subpoena under the uh the new law um and and took care of that 
moving on from there, we have the First Amendment. Um, there are several First Amendment cases. I'll talk about two briefly that are that are I think uh, not quite as um, as high profile. One is called Lozman v. City of Riviera Beach, Florida. This is an interesting case um, that's asking whether uh, if someone is alleging that they've been retaliated against for exercise of their First Amendment rights um, by by being arrested, um, if there was probable cause to arrest them uh, for some other reason, not for the retaliatory reason, does the fact that that probable cause exists um, preclude them from from bringing this First Amendment retaliation claim? And this, this result revolved around a man who was um, a uh, uh, speaking at a, uh, a city council meeting in uh, in Riviera Beach, Florida, and uh, and was arrested after he was um, making uh, comments about uh, corruption in, in local government. Um and uh, and brought it this uh, suit uh, alleging retaliation. Another case is called Minnesota Voters Alliance v. Mansky, and that asks whether um, Minnesota's ban on uh, political apparel at the polls, so so wearing clothing or badges or you know um, pins or things with political messages, whether that violates uh, the uh, First Amendment's right to free speech by by banning people from wearing things with political messages. Now, there are three more free speech cases. These are, I think, uh, some of the most anticipated one for First Amendment cases this, this term. And all three are in the category of compelled speech. They're all um, about whether uh, whether the government is unconstitutionally compelling someone to speak um, in a situation where they, they, they don't want to uh, be conveying a particular message. And all these are also, um, there's a, there's a, they, they fit into a, a, a a trend here where all three of these are cases where um, someone from uh, the the conservative uh, side of the political spectrum is bringing a case under these compelled on um, this compelled speech ra- rationale um, and 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 alleging that the the government's actions um, are uh, are are violating the First Amendment. Uh, the first, and this is probably the, the arguably the single most high-profile case of the entire term, is Masterpiece Cake Shop, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission, and this is a case about a, a Colorado uh, baker um, and whether the application of anti-discrimination laws to this uh, this cake baker um, uh, who had been asked to uh, create a wedding cake for a uh, same-sex sex. Uh, wedding um, celebration, whether this was uh, compelled speech to apply the anti-discrimination law to require this baker to to um, to make the cake for that uh, ceremony. Um, another compelled speech case in a totally different context is Janice v. American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. This is a case about um, union agency fees. Those are the fees that um, non-union members of a of a uh, unionized work uh, um, workplace. Fees that they have to pay to the union to cover um, collective bargaining costs uh, and grievance procedure costs and things like that, services that the union provides for all members, not fees that go to uh, separate um, political uh, political expenditures of the union, but but things that go directly to the union's representational functions. Um, can a non non member nonetheless compl- uh, uh, refuse to pay those agency fees because they require um, the uh, the support of positions that the uh, that the person objects to so that the the union is taking positions on matters of public concern that the um, the non-member objects to is this is this unconstitutional compelled speech and the third compelled speech case uh, is out of California it's called National Institute of Family and Life Advocates the Becerra 
And this is about a California law called the Reproductive Fact Act that requires uh, what's known as crisis pregnancy centers. And these are um, pro-life centers that um, provide uh, pregnancy-related services but also um, uh, are intended to, to help to um, uh, counsel women uh, away from choosing uh, abortion. Um, the FACT Act, this California uh, law, requires them to post certain uh, disclosures um, related to uh, to provision of abortion that uh, that these uh, clinics object to um, as 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 uh, compelled speech that's contrary to their 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 messages. So so that's th- those all of those First Amendment speeches are all still outstanding and and uh, and are being highly anticipated. Um, the court heard a couple cases this year uh, related to tax law. Um, one is just an extremely uh, niche um, issue that that uh, is only going to be of interest to uh, a small number of people. It's called Wisconsin, Wisconsin Central v. United States. And this asks whether stock options are taxable under the Railroad Retirement Tax Act, which is a special kind of alternative to Social Security taxes that uh, applies to um, people who work in the railroad industry. Um, but the second case is much more... Um, has, has much broader implications. This is a case called South Dakota v. Wayfair. And this is a case which, which basically asks, um, whether states can, uh, impose sales taxes on out-of-state, um, online vendors. So, so, so internet, uh, sellers who have no physical presence in, presence in a particular state, can they nevertheless be, um, required to collect sales tax? Now, um, there's the court's uh, previous precedents, which date back from the mail order catalog days, had required companies to have a um, a physical presence in a particular state before they could be required to collect sales tax. And this is directly challenging those precedents and arguing that the court should overturn it and require and allow states to impose these sales taxes on internet companies. Um, moving moving on to another uh, topic, there's immigration. Uh, the court had several immigration-related cases. Two, of the court has already decided. They're cases of Sessions v. DeMaia and Jennings v. Rodriguez. Now, both of these cases were cases that were originally heard last term when the court only had eight justices. But in both cases, the court divided four to four and had these cases re-argued this case after Justice Gorsuch joined the court to be the deciding fifth member. And in one of those two cases, he decided with the uh, – he, he sided with the um, conservative block of the court – uh, and in the other, he decided, he sided with the, the more, uh, the, uh, stereotypically liberal, liberal, um, block on the court. Um, so these cases went opposite directions, uh, just in terms of, uh, the, uh, the uh, political alignment. Uh, Sessions, Sessions v. DeMaio was a case, uh, that, about a statute that, that allows a deportation of immigrants convicted of a crime of violence. Um, and the court found there that the, the crime of violence was unconstitutionally vague. It was not, it was not well enough to defi- defined to be applied in these immigration cases. The second case called Jennings v. Rodriguez um, was a uh, ar- arguing that there was a right to a bond hearing for um, uh, persons that were held in immigration detention. So these are the people being held um, pending determination on whether they can be removed from the country, whether they're going to be deported or if they're stopped at the border, whether they're not going to be allowed to enter the country. Um, and some of these people can be held for extended periods of time. And they, they, the case was brought arguing that there should be a right to a bond hearing. The court there found that there was no statutory right to a bond hearing in those in those cases. Now, two more immigration cases that are still outstanding. One is called Pereira v. Sessions. Uh, and this is a pretty technical case but it's it's about um what the uh what what uh procedures the government needs to follow in order to basically stop the clock now uh, immigrants if 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 a uh an immigrant 
an unauthorized immigrant has been present in the country for a certain period of time, so for at least 10 years continuously, um, they ha- have a, the, a possibility to be eligible um, for cancellation of removal. That means that there's a procedure that, that may allow them to stay in the country, even if they're determined to be deportable. Um, but there are certain uh, – uh, the initiation of immigration procedures stops the clock and, and stops an immigrant from accruing any more time that would make them – to allow them to become eligible. And so the question here is what the government actually has to do in order to stop that clock. And then the other immigration case that's still outstanding, and this is the kind of the, the big one, is Trump v. Hawaii. This is the travel ban litigation, the, the Trump administration's um, proclamation barring entry into the country by nationals of um, certain countries, and it's uh, uh, the countries being challenged are five predominantly Muslim countries, um, and this is being challenged both in terms of the, whether Trump has the statutory authority to issue this ban, uh, and also whether this ban is a constitutional violation due to um, claims that it's a uh, violation of the um, the establishment clause. It's it's a uh, it's a uh, basically discriminating on the basis of uh, religion. And so that's that's a highly anticipated case that's uh, still outstanding. That case was just argued last week, uh, the last argument day of the term. Um, several cases this term directly relate to class actions. Uh, one case that was already decided was called uh, Cyan Incorporated, the Beaver County Employment Retirement Fund, Employees Retirement Fund, I'm sorry. And, and that case was about whether certain um, uh, class actions, uh, securities law class actions could be heard in state courts and, and, or, or that they can only be brought in federal courts. And the court there found that they could be, uh, brought in state courts. Um, two cases that are not yet, um, decided. One is called China Agritech v. Resch. And this is about, um, whether, uh, when a, uh, it's about, it's a statute of limitations question about when one class action is brought and then is dismissed and then someone wants to bring a second, uh, just revive it and bring a new class action on the same, um, claims, uh, whether, um, the statute of limitation is told, meaning is, is allowed to, uh, to, to remain open, is paused so that the, the time, the, uh, the time remains open um, so that these subsequent class actions can be brought. So that's still out there. But the other one, and this is, this is one is, is uh, highly anticipated. This is one that's being closely watched. It's a case called Epic Systems v. Lewis is actually several cases consolidated together. And this deals with the legality of um, employee arbitration agreements uh, with class action waivers. And the claim there is that these, uh, in the employment context, these are actually unlawful uh, class action waivers in, in arbitration agreements are unlawful under the National Labor Relations Act. Um, and this case was argued all the way back in October, uh, the first, uh, the first week of the term and, uh, and is still outstanding. So this, this is, uh, this is one that's really being watched closely. And then the final, uh, category of cases are election law related cases. Um, one case that's got a bit of attention is called Husted v. A. Philip Randolph Institute. And that's about um, the legality of Ohio's process for culling the voter rolls. So states uh, periodically remove people from the voter rolls who are believed to have moved or be deceased or, or uh, no longer eligible to vote. And uh, Ohio's process has been challenged as um, as uh, uh, um, illegal under under uh, federal voting laws. Um, and then there are three cases related to gerrymandering, related to the drawing of electoral districts. One case is called Abbott v. Perez out of Texas. And this is a racial gerrymandering case, uh, arguing that certain, um, certain Texas, uh, legislative districts were, were, um, illegally took racial, race into account, 
uh, impermissibly took race into account in drawing district lines. Um, and in this case, it has an interesting issue about whether uh, the legislature's adoption of a, uh, a, a map that was drawn by a court um, as an interim election map to uh, to to uh, at, to as an interim map that was supposed to cure constitutional defects, whether the later adoption of that by the legislature kind of insulates that map from challenges to its uh, its um, constitutionality. Um, that case, uh, these racial gerrymandering cases, the court hears quite a few of them, and they tend to be very very fact specific about the very uh, the details, the demographics, and specific facts and specific um, legislative actions related to particular districts. Um, so they don't necessarily always have very broad implications. The other two gerrymandering cases are the political gerrymandering cases, and these are being very closely watched. These are highly anticipated um, because depending what the court decides, they could uh, create kind of a sea change in um, in uh, the law of uh, creation of electoral districts. These are Gilvey Whitford which is a case out of Wisconsin, and Benesek v. Limon, a case out of Maryland. They're both challenges to the drawing of electoral districts along partisan lines for partisan advantage. Um, they, they have opposite political valences. In the Wisconsin case, it was the Republicans who had drawn districts to favor uh, Republicans, and in Maryland, it was the Democrats who had drawn the districts. Uh, and they also have different legal theories. The Gilvey-Whitford is um, an equal protection challenge uh, that argues that that on the basis of, of tests that have been developed by social scientists, um, courts can use these these social science tests, which go by names uh, like the efficiency gap and partisan symmetry tests, to determine whether gerrymandering has has gone too far. Um, the Maryland case, Benesek v. Limon, on the other hand, is is quite different. That is a First Amendment challenge. It argues that drawing um, drawing maps on the basis of people's partisan affiliation is uh to to disadvantage people on the basis of partisan uh, affiliation is first amendment retaliation it's uh it's uh, retaliating against someone on the basis of protected first amendment expression um and and thus unconstitutional there so it's two different theories both trying to get at the same underlying process pro- uh, pro- problem of uh, electoral lines being drawn on these these uh uh ex- partisan bases um, and so those are being very closely watched because they could have a huge impact all across the country in how um, lines are drawn for electoral districts. So, so that's that's the overview. That's that's uh, that's that's all of the cases for the term. The ones that have already been um, decided and the ones that are still outstanding, uh, covering a number of different uh, areas of statutory and constitutional law. And uh, now, over the next uh, two months, we'll be we'll be seeing the rest of these decisions come down. Um, and, uh, and also uh, seeing the, um, the court gradually fill up its fall calendar for next term. Uh, they've got 12 cases already, but based on, um, practice from the last, uh, decade or so, we can probably expect around another 20 cases or so to be added before the end of the term, um, to fill out the fall calendar, um, but remains to be seen. So, um, that's it for tonight's, uh, episode, um, the next live stream will be a week from today. That's Thursday, May 10th at 9 p.m. Eastern time. That's our usual weekly live stream time, Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. And you can always check the Counting to Five YouTube channel to find the next scheduled live stream. Now, uh, as I mentioned uh, up toward the, the beginning of, uh, of tonight's live stream, uh, nothing really is scheduled to happen next week at the court. Um, and so I'm asking you a reminder, a request to anyone who's watching or listening before May 10th, I want to know what you want to hear. Um, please uh, contact me. Let me know what you think I should uh, cover for next week's live stream. Um, 
and again, you can email me at mike at counting to five.com. Leave a comment on the show notes page at counting to five.com. Uh, leave a comment on YouTube or the Facebook page. Tweet at me at, at counting to five or leave a voicemail at seven, seven, four, two, two, six, eight, six, eight, five, seven, seven, four, two count five. Um, let me know what you want to hear. I will, um, cover as much as I can on next week's, uh, podcast, uh, podcast or live stream episode. And, um, please subscribe to the County five YouTube channel or audio podcast, uh, to make sure you don't miss future episodes. Thank you for listening. This has been counting to five.